Second Timothy, that's where we are. Um, we are wrapping up the year in this holiday season, uh, walking through Second Timothy. It's helping us to solidify, as I told you last week, what we've called our three-part foundational purpose, that we are following the Lord, feeding sheep, and freeing the world. You can say it different ways. That's how we've chosen to say it. We are in three relationships. And we are responsible for our relationship with God, with relationship to each other, and with our relationship to this world. And all three should be not just a responsibility and a duty, but they ought to become a joy for us. Amen? And we are specifically targeting our third purpose foundational area to try and, by the end of this year, going into the beginning of next year, really solidify what it, what it is to be called to free this world. Notice I didn't just say our county or our community, but the world. We have a calling to be light in a dark world. And so we are, we are trying to solidify here at Cornerstone that, that understanding of what it means to free the world so that we can be about that business. Amen? Uh, last week I introduced you to Paul's second letter to Timothy. I explained why I personally find it uh, helpful, but also that it's corporately pertinent for us. This is Paul's swan song. Amen? It's his last will and testament. It is uh, Paul passing the baton to his young protege. That's what we have here in 2 Timothy. And I ended last week with just a taste, perhaps, of the most impressive, or maybe, maybe impressive isn't the right word, maybe inspiring is the right word. The most inspiring aspect of this whole letter, the fact that Paul wrote it from prison. And it was in prison, uh, in a prison, that would make uh, any of our worst prisons look like a stay at the Holiday Inn. Amen. I gave you just a glimpse of that last week. Uh, but before we dive into the text itself, I thought we would get to the first three verses today. But as I was going through wrapping up the context, uh, the introduction to the letter, uh, we're not going to make it. So let's just finish there this morning. Amen. Let's just understand the context well. Uh, we're going to pick up with Paul's situation. Then we're going to look at Timothy, uh, because some of you may not have a good idea of who either of these men are. And we need to know it makes all the difference to understand who wrote the letter and who it's being written to. If you're going to pick up a personal letter between two people uh, that you don't know, it would be helpful to familiarize yourself with who those parties are and what the context of the writing of the letter would be. Right. Uh, we call that uh, in hermeneutics, we call it. Uh, understanding the context, right? And you understand that in a practical sense, that understanding the context of a letter like this, a personal letter between two, between two people is, is very important. Now, when you read the letter, if you understand the context, then you can sympathize with the situation, the context, the wording. You can almost put yourself in the place of the reader or the writer. So Paul's situation. In 2 Corinthians, Paul gives a good summary of his life. I want to read it to you. I'll paraphrase a little bit of it for emphasis sake. Here's what he says, Second Corinthians. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such eternal uh, external things, there is daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That's the day to day life of the Apostle Paul. 
in his words, 2 Corinthians 11 and following. That was the life, and now it comes to his death in 2 Timothy. And the picture really doesn't get any better. Uh, It doesn't look any brighter for him in his last days. I told you last week that the prison Paul now finds himself in is literally a hole. It's a hole in the ground. It's a site. If you go to Rome today, you can visit. It's called the uh, Memoritine Prison. What is now remaining of that uh, Memoritine Prison is a dungeon in the ground. Literally, it's a hole, a circular pit about 30 feet in diameter, if you can get a picture here. It's got a hole at the top that's a little larger than a manhole in a street. You look through the hole and you can see the pit underneath with its stone floor and stone walls in the shape of a circle. That was a place of incarceration in Paul's day for criminals. You were either lowered into the pit or simply dropped into the pit. And then against one section of that circular pit, if you can picture it in your mind's eye, there was a door, a large door. If you tour today, I'm told that they'll show you this large, heavy door and explain to you what it was used for. It was a door that was able to be pulled up by rope and then dropped back into place with a crash. The door was there, they will tell you, for execution purposes. It was common to place prisoners, dropping them through the hole into the dungeon. Up to about 30 or 35 prisoners would fit. Would fit. And then in order to make room for the next crop of criminals, here's what they would do. That door on one wall would be pulled open. And running alongside this dungeness jail cell was the Roman sewer system. (laughs) And they would raise the door, let the sewer flood the hole, drowning these 35 prisoners, and then they let it sweep them out as they closed the door and drained now the sewage to make room for another crop of prisoners. Paul had faced much, but nothing like this. Five or six years earlier, he had been put on house arrest, but he could have visitors. People could come and go, bring him supplies. He could write letters. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon from from house arrest type things. There was a guard at his door, but he was he was given luxuries. Once he was released from house arrest, uh, we know he went among other places to Ephesus to visit the fledgling church there. It was in Ephesus where he met Timothy. At the end of his uh, stay there in Ephesus, he left Timothy in charge of this young, fledgling, troubled church. He leaves Ephesus and he writes what we know to be 1 Timothy back to Timothy, helping him to deal with all the issues that this church had. That's 1 Timothy. Then he continues on. He's preaching for a while, some three or four more years, and he ends up now in this hole What happened? We don't exactly know what happened. Here's what we do know. We know that a guy named Nero, a madman, really, steps onto the scene and decides to literally torch Rome. He burns it down. And uh, then, to add insult to injury, he decides he wasn't going to take credit for burning Rome. He uh, was going to blame it on a new religious sect. Guess who? The Christians. 
And so now a wave of persecution breaks out and many Christians are arrested and executed before and after Paul. Paul, being the leading spokesman of Christianity at this time, he's, he's hunted and found. And now he's not on house arrest. Tensions are high. Christians are the worst of the worst. He's not immediately executed. He's dropped into this hole. But I want you to understand, uh, as I give you this morning, a little more complete picture of that hole that I started to explain to you last week. I want you to understand uh, by getting that picture, not just the physical struggle that Paul must have went through in that cold, dark, damp hole, not just the physical struggle, but I want you to understand the mental and emotional plight of the apostle as he's penning the words of Second Timothy. Now, let me give you an idea. From the text, here's what we're going to find out. In chapter 1, verse 16, we know he is literally in chains. Furthermore, in verse 17, it says that when Onesiphorus came to Rome, he eagerly, quote, searched for me and finally found me, which means to say that it was an obscure place where Paul was in prison. It was hard to find. It also might indicate that a network of Christians who might have known where Paul was in a better climate of Christianity had perhaps abandoned him had not attached themselves to him in such a way that they would know where he actually was so that when Onesiphorus came looking for them, they could say, yeah, here's exactly where he is. We get, the, we get the idea that people began to separate themselves from the spokesman of Christianity. He wasn't easy to find. Chapter 2, verse 9 tells us it was a place with criminals. Paul knows, according to chapter 4, verse 6, that he is near the end. He's facing imminent execution. Quote, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure. Analusis, the untying of his ship from this earth, from this shore to go to the eternal shore. That time he knows is immediate. Down in verse 16, when he was arrested and said to defend himself, says this, uh, when you were arrested, you, you got sent before the magistrate, as it were. And you had an opportunity to defend yourself and you had opportunity for others to come and maybe defend you. He says in this verse, when I was first brought before the magistrate, before they actually threw me in the hole. Listen to what he says. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. What's even more sad and even uh, impressive about the Apostle Paul is his response in the next verse. He says, may it not be counted against them, though they deserted me. Who does that sound a whole lot like? Maybe a guy named Stephen, if you know his story. Or maybe a guy named Jesus. Forgive them for uh, they don't understand what they're doing. He says in verse 11 that the only friend he has around is a guy named Luke. Everyone else has either been sent out in ministry. And that's an amazing thought in and of itself, isn't it? That he sent the few friends the few fellows in ministry that he has, he sent them out in ministry here at the end to the point where only Luke is, is left to be there. He's still thinking about ministry. Uh, Crescius, he's gone to Galatia. Titus, he's gone to Dalmatia. Verse 12, Tychicus, I sent to Ephesus. It's amazing, isn't it? He's still sending guys out, out of this pit. So they have, uh, they have either been sent out or they have deserted him. 
And that's an amazingly sad thought in and of itself. Here's a guy who's given his life to get to get you the gospel to bring you freedom. Eternal freedom. And you bail on him. Imagine the emotional plight that would take on the impossible. But that has apparently happened. Verse 10, he says, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That must have broken the apostle's heart. Again, only Luke is with me. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, he also understands that all in Asia Minor, that would include the area where Ephesus were, uh, was the church at Ephesus, which is the church that uh, Timothy was responsible for. All in Asia Minor have abandoned him, he says. He's lonely. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I long to see you, Timothy. I'll, I'll tell you on another day how strong that verbiage is. I long to see you, Timothy. And in chapter 4, verse 9, he repeats to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. Again, in verse 21, make every effort to come. Come before winter. He was lonely right to the end. After all he had given. After all he had given. By the way, uh, this isn't a story that you and I would write even if we had the audacity to write it. You understand what I'm saying? (laughs) Scripture is not the story a human would write. If you or I, if a human wrote the story of Scripture, it would have ended pretty well for Paul. He may have struggled all of his life, but how would the end have been? He would have been... He would have been blessed in the end. Everyone would have come to his aid and he would have, you know, been drawn out of the hole by, you know, uh, spear uh, toting disciples, you know, to the defense of Paul. He would have been set up in some mansion somewhere and he would have lived out the remaining of his days in happiness. Right. That would have been how we ended the story. But uh, good news here. Scripture tells the truth. Amen. Scripture tells the hard truth. But that's. That's actually the best thing for us. We can trust Scripture because it tells the hard truth. It doesn't make up a happy ending when there is no happy ending. There was no happy ending in human terms for Paul. Paul's life ends tragically by our standards. He's alone and he's cold. In verse 13 he says, And when you come, Timothy, bring the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus." He has practical needs here. He's not only alone. He's in need of the basics, the essentials. Bring my, bring my coat when you come. Try and come before winter. Suffice it to say, Paul didn't know anything about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, did he? Uh, let me read you what a guy named John MacArthur, pastor and scholar, theologian, extraordinaire, yada, yada, what he said about the Apostle Paul here that I think uh, it goes a long way to set up what I'm trying to show you about this Apostle who's going to pen this letter. You know, if you're going to understand who wrote this so that you can understand his words as they come out, I can't do a better job than he did. So listen to what John MacArthur has said. Quote, can I give you a little insight into great men of God? And by great men, he also means they're gender neutral women. Okay. What makes a great man or woman of God. John MacArthur says, let me give you a little insight into what makes a person great. Now, as you hear these words that he's about to say about the Apostle Paul, based on his last writing in 2 Timothy, don't just think about the Apostle Paul. 
Why don't you go ahead and ask yourself if these things are going to be true about you in your last will and testament? Listen, can I give you a little insight into great men of God? They have a sense of mission that expands beyond their own life. They're not driven by ambition. They are driven by mission. Let me say that again. They're not driven by ambition. They're driven by mission. They're not driven by their own sense of success or their own need to attain. They are consumed by a bigger picture. And it was far more important to Paul that he complete the work than his life go on. It was far more important to Paul that the work go on than that his life go on. He does not write his last letter to say, woe is me, look what's happened. All this I've given and now I have nothing. He does not. He does not write and castigate the people who have refused to show their heads and identify with him. He writes to carry on the mission. Because great men of God are moved not by personal comfort, personal success, personal attainment, but by mission. They see themselves as engulfed in something beyond their own lifetime. They see themselves as engulfed in something beyond their own lifetime. And the desire of his heart is to pass the baton and carry on the work and build up a new generation of godly men. The specific instruction to Timothy is with that in regard. Timothy, you'll have to carry this on. And the work must go on. The work that Jesus began must carry on until Jesus comes and finishes it himself. You see, this is... uh, This is why Paul writes 2 Timothy. His life, listen, his life must outlive him. Think about that. Paul will not be satisfied unless the ministry outlives him. All right, so now before we go on to uh, who this Timothy was, uh, let me just, let me just ask a question. Let me just ask one question, one hard question, based on what we've been faced with um, by the character, the integrity, the commitment of the Apostle Paul. Let me just ask one tough question of application. Will your Christianity outlive you? Will your Christianity outlive you or will it die with you? What are you doing to pass the baton? What are you doing in your house, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your workplace, etc.? What are you doing in any of those areas that will outlive you for the glory of God? Not for your glory, and this is an important qualification to that statement, not for your glory, but for God's glory. Because many a man will die and their glory will outlive them For a certain amount of time. Their successes might follow them for a few years. That's not the question. The question is. The question is. Will your your faith outlive you? Will your investment. Your commitment. Your love of Christ. And his kingdom outlive you? 
Not your legacy, but Christ's. Let me pause here and uh, deal with something that always pops up right here. When you talk about being sold out to this degree, when you talk about a guy who gave his life to this extent, uh, this is always an issue. So let's just go ahead and deal with it right here. Um, Pastor, are you telling me that in order to live my life and uh, make my life count for Christ, I have to die poor, alone, far from home, in some hole somewhere? Is that what you're telling me? Okay. Let me give you two answers. Number one, no. That's not what I'm telling you. And at that point, I just want to be like an old quarterback and just slap you upside the helmet. No, that's dumb. That's not what I'm saying. All right? Let me give you, let me give you my standard advice here. Make as much money as you can. Make as many friends as you can and live as good a life as you can, as long as none of those things get in the way of your calling and your love and your commissioning by Christ. Amen. If you can make a million dollars tomorrow, make it. Use it for the kingdom. Amen. Don't lie, cheat and steal to do it. Make as much as you can for the kingdom. Have as many friends as you can. Make those friendships profitable. Okay. I'm not telling you. That your life has to end like the life of Paul's in order for your life to be spent on Christ and his kingdom. Answer number one, no, that's not what I'm saying. Answer number two, but it might be. (laughs) It might be. Uh, Let me explain. Um, About 20 years ago when the seeker-sensitive movement hit, uh, we stopped making hard calls on the congregation from the pulpit. Generally speaking, uh, we started saying things like this. Uh, If you're going to be a Christian, it doesn't mean that when you become a Christian, that God's going to send you to the dark backwoods of Africa somewhere to be a missionary forgotten about for the rest of your life. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Now, I get that. And I remember sitting in the churches as a new new Christian back then thinking, yeah, thank you for thank you for saying that. That's right. Answer number one. But what we lost when we started going to that as our pat answer is answer number two. The qualification that, but maybe it does. <laughs> but maybe that is part of your life. Maybe you will spend it like that. Maybe that is what God has for you. Don't automatically rule that out. Don't automatically put that into the category of that might be the worst thing ever. And so, of course, God would never ask you to do that. Just maybe he will. Um, by the way, Paul didn't die in a hole far from home. Just to be clear. He made it out of the hole. Then they cut his head off later. Uh, let me make a statement here. And this may be, if you forget everything else, remember this one. Great men and women of God outlive themselves because they are willing Great men and women of God outlive themselves because they are willing. Key word, willing. Every now and then I hear uh, someone say, I don't need to do this or that, or I don't need to go here or go there in order for me to be committed to Christ, in order for, for my life to be lived for God. And of course, you're right. You don't. But maybe you do. It's a matter of willingness, you see. You better be willing to do this or that or go here or there. Amen. You better have a heart that says. Wherever you lead, I'll go 
Or maybe that's just a song we sing at the end of, at the end of services. But do we, do we mean it? Yeah, of course being a Christian doesn't mean that maybe God's going to send me to the, to the darkest place on earth. But, but don't rule it out. We've got to cultivate in the church the heart and the attitude and the character and the commitment of a guy like Paul who's willing to go to extremes if God says go. It's a willingness. Paul writes to Timothy to be sure the torch is passed. The whole epistle is based on this instruction to Timothy, how to carry on the mission. Paul's concern is not only for the mission, but it's also for Timothy. Paul knows Timothy. He knows him well. He'll call him a son. He knows his strengths and he knows his weaknesses. What we gather about Timothy is that he probably faced much hardship himself. Not just persecution from without, but strife from within the ranks as well. And sometimes that's worse. Come under friendly fire. It seems that Paul is terribly concerned in this letter that Timothy might be at a breaking point. And that wouldn't be too surprising. Let me give you a little taste here in what you're going to find in the letter that leads us to believe that's Paul's understanding of where Timothy is in ministry. Listen, chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Paul was in his 60s by this time. Timothy was probably in his mid-30s. We know that from 1 Timothy that this was a struggle for Timothy, being a younger guy, right, trying to lead men who, who maybe have more uh, age on him, probably know their Jewish law much better than him. It would be understandable for a young minister to be intimidated by seasoned Jews. On top of that, Timothy was dealing with arrogant and divisive false teachers in his ministry. Listen to some of these statements made by Paul later. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Maybe Timothy was weakening a bit. Maybe Paul was worried about that. Do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Be willing to join with me in suffering for the gospel. Maybe, maybe Timothy was trying to avoid some hardship here. Maybe he was avoiding being identified with guys like Paul, lest he be thrown in places like Paul was thrown. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Maybe, maybe Timothy was starting to compromise the message even. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure. And by treasure, he means the scripture, the word of God, the truth of the gospel, which he says has been entrusted to you. It's your responsibility. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. Foolish and ignorant speculations refuse. Do not be quarrelsome. Be gentle. Maybe... Maybe Timothy has begun to drop the ball in some of these areas. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says to him, realize this, that in the last days, Timothy, difficult times will come. You have to expect it, Timothy. Verse 11, persecution, suffering such as happened to me at Antioch should be expected. Verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 14, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of knowing who you have learned them from. In chapter 4, verse 1, the most strong command of the whole epistle, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Do not relent. And that's what we're to do. 
That command gets handed right through Timothy down to us. In verse 5, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill, Timothy, your ministry. It's generally understood that um, Paul believed Timothy to be weakening in some of these areas. To what degree, we don't know. But as you would imagine, Paul is relentless, and that's what he's going to ask of Timothy and what he's going to ask of us, to be relentless ourselves. Uh, can I just give you my opinion, though, right here? Uh, I'm of the opinion that um, Timothy had not relented. I, I don't think he had. I, I think Paul knew how hard the road had already been for Timothy. And I think by experience, Paul knew just how hard the road might be in Timothy's future. And I think, uh, I think that he knew even the thought of relenting in the heart and mind of a guy like Timothy, would spur him on to fight the good fight one more day. The guy who uh, taught me the Bible, I heard him, heard him say one time, Tommy Nelson, he said, uh, he said, you know, when we read certain letters in Scripture, they elicit certain feelings, certain emotions within us. If you read one letter, it may... It may spur you to a deeper commitment theologically. He said if you read another letter of Scripture, it may uh, spur you to uh, the emotion or the feeling, the intense feeling of praise or devotion. Uh, It may lead you to uh, conviction. Uh, It may lead you to awe. Different letters do that. He said for me, 2 Timothy has has a unique emotion that it draws out of me. He says, for me, my sense of heritage is sparked. I'm motivated to honor God and those who have suffered well before me by taking up their torch. It, it pricks my pride in my heritage to see men who have been faithful to the end go before. And in their failing hand, are reaching out the torch, reaching out that baton to the next generation. And he says, the emotion I get is to grab that baton, to grab that torch, raise it high, and run even harder, run even faster, no matter what the storm I have to lean into is. You know what a poppy is? You know what a poppy is? Any, any flower people out there? Any green thumbs? You know what a poppy is? Poppy's a flower. Put that picture of the poppies up there. Uh, a poppy is a flower. It's, it's used, it's become traditional to use poppies as a flower of remembrance. Maybe you've seen around Memorial Day or uh, uh, any kind of military remembrance holidays. Uh, you'll see them put these flowers on graves. Uh, a guy in World War I who fought in World War I in an area in France, uh, in, a, in a particularly uh, bloody area of France, he wrote a poem. It's called Flanders Fields. It's a pretty famous poem. It's probably, it's said to be the most famous poem that came out of World War I. He wrote this poem, and uh, it, it, the story behind the poem is this, that on this particular battlefield, they had fought relentlessly. And just the day before, he watched a, one of his comrades go down, a young 22-year-old friend of his go down. The next day, he wrote this poem based on the fact that they buried these faithful soldiers here on Flanders' battlefield. 
where poppies sprouted up and blew back and forth. It was beautiful, but it was, it was frightening and terrible at the same time. Listen, listen to this poem. In Flanders fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Let's pray. Father God, there are those who have gone before us, who have paid a dear price, who have faithfully lived and ministered and have faithfully uh, given their life to the cause of your kingdom. Lord God, we, uh, we should in our hearts be pricked to gratitude, be pricked to a prideful heritage for those who have gone before, who are willing to go to the extremes, who had the willingness to say, wherever you go, I'll lead. Men like Paul, men like Timothy, who would go to their death, if only you said, go. And it's because the news was so important. It's because the fight was so crucial. It was a cause worthy of dying for. It was a, it was a fight worth dying over. Lord, uh, might just the, uh, the introduction to men like Paul and Timothy, even before we read and, and dive into their, their story as recorded in 2 Timothy, might just knowing them better spur us to be more committed more deeply in love with you, might it elicit not just ambition in us, but a passion for the mission. Might this be like a, uh, like a pep rally for our soul that as we've, we've heard of comrades faithful to the end, that we would stand and say, I'll go wherever you lead, I'll go. And I'll take a stand, even if it's a hard one, even if I get knocked down, even if I get embarrassed, even if I get mocked, even if they take my head. Oh, Lord, would you would you build in us that fierce passion for ministry? As we uh, as a church, as a body. 
look to uh, move beyond these walls and, and expand this family, as it were, and connect to those in our world. Lord God, would you use stories like Second Timothy? Would you use your word and the men of it? push us forward, that we might run harder, lift the torch higher. And if we fall, get back up. Lord, teach us to stand. Your glory is, uh, it's worth it all. It's worth it all. Paul, Paul knew that it was a small price to pay. His life traded for the life of many others was a small price to pay. Even if his last moment was cold, dark, and alone, he knew the trade-off. And the truth is, Father, some of us have yet to come to grips with the trade-off. Lord, I, on a daily basis, struggle with the trade-off. My life for your glory. My life For the salvation of those who walk in this world in darkness. Who don't know that they are separated from you. Who don't know that when they step into eternity. They'll they'll face a righteous and a just judge. That will set all things straight. That will declare justice. That will be fair. And will judge us according to righteousness. And will hold us accountable for our sins. There is a world around us. Maybe in our home that doesn't know. <laughs> and that, that trade-off of our, our life is worth it. To extend that grace. To extend that glory. To extend that mercy. To extend that light into the darkness before you call time is up before you before you step out of eternity back to heaven and earth and you bring all things to an end we have one more day and one more day that you are being patient not desiring that any should perish but that all might come to repentance and Lord now we walk out of this place with that joyful responsibility squarely on our shoulders and it's been placed there not just by not just by Christ and his sufferings but men like Paul and Timothy and and those who have come long after maybe our parents maybe our grandparents maybe a dear friend might we take up the torch from failing hands The poppies blow. Lord, help us to stand. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us. We're going to do one more song and be dismissed. As always, this is uh, not just a time to sing so that we can go. This is a time to absorb and listen and allow the Spirit of God to do what He needs to do. If you've got to let go of that seat in front of you and come up here and pray, And just listen, maybe. Maybe you don't even know the words. You just need to come and pray. You need to do that. 
Maybe you don't even need to stand. Maybe you need to sit down and you need to stare right at the floor and just say, God, I, I, I don't know. I need help. I want, I want to hold the torch high, but I need help. And maybe you need to stand with hands lifted high. <laughs> maybe you need to sing the top of your lungs. Just listen to the Spirit. Listen to the Spirit. We go out this door, life starts again, so to speak. And your mind will go right back to where it was. Don't rush through it. Don't rush through it. We're not going to stay long. You just listen. Then we'll be dismissed.